Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roten, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Meredith, your section had a story this week about the Board of Trustees becoming smaller. Yeah, so it sounds like such a little thing, literally, but Chairman Nelson Carbonell, who's the chairman of the Board of Trustees, said at a faculty senate meeting a couple of weeks ago that he has been working on making the board smaller for his entire term, which is going to be up at the end of this year. And he said it's going to make the board more efficient and make people more engaged that are on the board. And it's something that we wanted to look into to see how how this compares to our other schools and it really seems like GW is kind of leading the trend here. Um, We have 20 members on our board as compared to our peers who have an average of 46 members on their board. So it's a huge difference. And when we talked to experts, they, they talked about how this is something that a lot of boards are trying to do in making their boards smaller, but it's just difficult. Why might it be difficult? The experts that we spoke to said it's politics, essentially. It's just difficult if you have board members that have put their time and their money into this organization and being a part of the university, and then it's difficult to ask them to leave if you do that at all. So most times, boards shrink by attrition in that people's terms come up and then their spots aren't renewed. And what are the benefits to this move? Why have a smaller board? Well, first of all, Carbonell said that it would make the board more engaged and have it be uh, more agile in terms of they can get more done. When we talked to experts about this, they basically agreed. They said that having fewer people in a room makes it easier to talk. It makes it easier to feel like you've contributed something. One expert said that it increases accountability for the work that the Board of Trustees does because then the members feel like, oh, there's like it's only me in this committee or it's only me and a couple of other people like I'm responsible for this work. But what are the benefits of keeping a board larger for a school? Yeah, the experts I spoke to said that there are some benefits in that it's harder to have diversity in gender and race and background on a smaller board. It's hard to keep those spots uh, filled. But I mean, it still can be done, they said, but it's just more difficult on a smaller board. Also, Board members are expected to contribute financially at most institutions, and if you have a smaller board, you're obviously not having as many uh, people that are expected to donate. The board members have been connected with the university for a long time, so it's not a given that they will stop donating, but it's not necessarily expected of them to donate, and they having a larger board means that you have more kind of people out there who can ask for donations as well, because that's a big part of the role of the Board of Trustees is also like being at fundraising events and uh, talking to people who could turn into potential donors. Well, thanks for telling us about your story this week, Meredith. Anytime, Leah. This week, we have a story from Sarah, a news editor at The Hatchet. And Sarah, you have a story this week about something that the Student Association started last year, and they're kind of bringing it back, revamping it a little. Uh, Can you tell us about this initiative? 
Yeah, just uh, for a background on on what's currently happening, um, a couple of student association senators at the beginning of last academic year, they started a task force to evaluate the name of the Marvin Center. The Marvin Center is named after um, Cloyd Heck Marvin, who was a former university president. And like through the student association senators' research, they found that Marvin's past was sort of problematic and he had ties to racism and supported slavery and things like that. So they decided to launch a task force to evaluate whether or not they would be able to change the name of the Marvin Center and like pre- present whatever research they have of Marvin to administrators um, to sort of like get the ball rolling and see if they can um, push anything forward and, and get administrators on board with changing its name. But that sort of dissolved at the end of the academic year. They hadn't really made much progress. So how are they reworking it for this year? So this year, the Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion in the Student Association, her name is Shelby Singleton. Um, She is trying to relaunch that same task force, but instead of just evaluating the Marvin Center's name, she is evaluating every single building name on campus um, for whether or not they had a problematic past. And so first, uh, she submitted a proposal to um, University President Thomas LeBlanc, and they're waiting to hear back from whether LeBlanc thinks it would be best to pursue a task force from the president's office or through the student association. And through SA leaders' research that they've been doing over the past couple of months before they presented this to LeBlanc, they were saying that, you know, other schools like Yale University, um, Tulane University, University of Minnesota have had these task force created at their respective schools. And some of them were effective, some of them weren't, but the ones that were effective started from the president's office. So that's what SA leaders want to happen. Um, they are just waiting to hear back from LeBlanc on that. And from there, they are going to create a task force comprised of faculty, professors, student leaders, uh, including SA leaders, and evaluate how the university has changed um, over the past few years in terms of the diversity of its student body, student sentiments toward building names, and then from there they're going to create principles and using those principles they are going to evaluate if certain building names match whatever principles they've come up with. This idea didn't work out last year, so why did they feel like they needed to revive it? Singleton was saying that she is a student of color, and she had had a couple conversations with Amani Ross, who was um, a former essay senator who started this task force in the first place. Uh, and when Amani stepped down at the end of the academic year, Singleton thought that it was a good opportunity um, in the role that she currently has in the essay to pick this up and get something started from the administrative level rather than from the student association level. And why are they trying to get other students and and faculty and staff involved in the task force. Last year, one of the reasons that Singleton thought it wasn't as successful was because it was mainly just student leaders evaluating the name of the Marvin Center. Um, It wasn't really a joint effort with professors and with administrators and student leaders. Singleton said you could have so much more um, impact on whether or not there can be some progress on this um, if you have support from every single aspect of, of the university. Thanks for giving us an update on this issue, Sarah. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Nara. We're back with our student life editor, Sarah Roach, who had another story this week, and this one focused on why rankings for universities can be problematic. So I was looking into a report from Stanford University's Graduate School of Education, and they came out with something earlier this month that is basically evaluating 
why selectivity in college and rankings in college are less important than the actual like, engagement that students have while they're at a university. So basically what the report is saying is that rankings are problematic because they don't ad- adequately reflect what kind of experience a student is getting and how satisfied they are at a university. It's based on other factors like SAT scores and average class size um, and acceptance rate and things like that. And then it's also saying that college selectivity is not a reliable predictor of student learning or job satisfaction. And what's more important is engagement in college. Like I said before, that has to do with the type of mentors that students are getting while they're at school or the type of internships that they're getting and what kind of outcomes are produced from that. And, you know, this is prevalent right now at GW because GW has sort of fallen in the rankings um, in U.S. News and World Report. We've dropped off the list of the top 10 most politically active campuses in America, and our admissions rate has also gone up um, for the third year in a row. But in addition to that, officials are also saying, well, we're focusing um, even now more than ever on improving the student experience and making sure that students are happy when they're here rather than, you know, what students are perceiving us to be from the outside based on like how we're ranked or how selective we are. What are the benefits of this then, of having this outlook that rankings might not be the priority for a university? I spoke with a few higher education experts who were basically, they were in agreement with what the report said. And if GW is doing the same and they're prioritizing student satisfaction over how it's perceived by people outside the university, that could benefit how content students are in the long run. And it could also contribute to a more diverse student body because more students may feel like they have a better shot at getting into the university if they're seeing that it's more willing to accept a larger number of students and more willing to diversify its student body by not being so selective. Even if administrators are focusing less on rankings, does that mean that potential students will do the same? Experts were also saying that there's sort of a catch-22 with, you know, people really heavily relying on rankings and selectivity um, to determine whether or not it's a good enough institution to attend, then not really taking into consideration the experiences that students are getting when they get there. Um, So, If GW is becoming less selective and they're falling down in the rankings, then prospective students and families could see it as a lesser institution. That would still be an outcome if GW is focusing on its student satisfaction of the students that are currently there. But in terms of like the the past academic year, that hasn't really done much to um, the volume of students who apply. Well, thanks for coming on this week, Sarah, and telling us more about how GW is going to reprioritize its rankings. Yeah, thanks for having me, Leah. Margot, Culture had a story this week about an alumna who is now working as an artist. Yeah, her name is Tyree Brown. She graduated in May with an associate's degree in fine arts, but she's had a journey that is unlike anything I've heard. So in 2013, she came to the Corcoran School of Arts and Design and, you know, she felt like she could do everything within art and that she had no limits to that. Two years into her studies, she suffered through a car accident that left her quadriplegic, meaning that she lost a lot of motion or almost all motion in all four of her limbs. She had real feelings of never being able to do art again, and it was pretty frustrating for her to, you know, resume activities like in her art for a long time. How did she overcome these challenges? How is she doing art now? Yeah, so she went through occupational therapy to really get control, what control she could seize out of her left hand, 
which is her non-dominant hand. She had been making art with her right hand for that whole time and now is only able to paint, albeit very slowly, yeah. with the functioning, that with the motion that she is allowed with her left hand. She said that she was continuing to build her skill in a matter of three years. And she would doodle basically in every sketchbook, you know, starting from just these kind of sketches that were a little scrapped, but then building her way back up to more structured ways of portraiture and things of that nature. And now she has kind of refined her skill in graphite and charcoal sketches and portraits to something that is totally inspiring. And she still thinks that she has so much artistry to give and to learn. And so it's really cool, like, going through her Instagram feed and seeing the work that she does, even though it might take up to, like, a month to really complete, as opposed to what it took for her before her injury. And tell me about what her art looks like. What types of things is she drawing? What is her overall aesthetic? Sure. You know, she she started really building back her skill doing portraits of her family members, and she intends on doing a self-portrait collection um, because that's what she really is specializing at but she also has found inspiration from the people who have supported her on social media she talks about how one of her portraits was from a man who commented on her picture saying you know commending her faith to her art and her tenacity to keep going and she decided to give him space in her um, repertoire in the future, you know, as she's still getting back her skills in art and that, you know, it's hard for her to be working with more complicated mediums, she hopes to get back into painting, which is something she previously was pretty skilled at. What was it like for her after the accident to still be a student here at GW? Getting back to GW was probably, you know, just a, a difficult thing for her as like a student who is just now dealing with a disability and now has to pursue a career, like her, you know, degree, continue her degree. It took her three years to get her associate's degree in fine arts after her accident. So Tyree Brown said that GW's accessibility and the way that they accommodated her throughout was just really, like, great. They had a lot of studio spaces for her to pursue her art in the comfort of her own time and to build back her skill. They added wheelchair ramps and more studio spaces. Well, thank you for telling us about this alumna and artist. Yes, I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more of her art someday. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editor Margot Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Colon and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Sarah Roach for joining us. Happy Halloween and see you next week.